Hello and welcome to Top in Tech. The Labour Party conference has just concluded in the United Kingdom with the party position itself as a government in waiting. There was a lot of policy discussion both in the conference hall and at the fringe events and tech came up time and time again and there were many questions about how it relates to Labour's policy agenda and Keir Starmer's five missions that he wants to undertake once he's in government. Darren Jones, Shadow Chief Secretary of the Treasury, argued that tech has to be inherent in delivering all of Labour's five missions, such as reform of healthcare and reform of our schools and education system. A few weeks ago, Global Council published a report looking at this very issue and how tech could reform the way that the UK does government and the delivery of public services. The report was supported by an industry working group led by John Geeve, who's the former permanent secretary at the Home Office and a former deputy governor of the Bank of England. And the findings were based on interviews with people within the Treasury, Cabinet Office, National Audit Office, and many more beyond. My name's Colin Darcy. I am a senior practice director at Global Council, and I'm delighted to say that joining me today to talk through these findings is Poppy Woodcock, who was the lead author of the report. So thank you for joining me today, Poppy. Before we go into the ins and outs of what the report says and what you found while you were researching and drafting it, could you just start off by giving listeners a potted history of digitization efforts in the UK? And I'd like to get a sense of, do you think the UK is a global leader in this respect or more of a laggard? Absolutely. So the UK used to be at the forefront of digital government. The development of the gov.uk website in 2012 was a great example of where they're leading in this space. Unfortunately, in recent years, we've seen some decline in this, particularly highlighted during the pandemic. For example, in 2021, a study by the European Commission on e-government maturity found the UK to be in 19th place, particularly lagging behind when it came to non-citizen-facing services. Given the strength of the UK tech sector, this is particularly poor. And the UK is actually very well placed to seize on technology innovation. So that's why our report examined different ways that the government might like to do this. There was also a sense, at the time I came into working for the Deputy Prime Minister in government in 2014, there was a real sense at the time when Francis Maud was, was in charge, that the UK was a leader and UK with the government digital service, gov.uk, had made real progress. We'll probably go on to this as we go on that you know, things are a little bit harder. There's some low-hanging fruits at the start, but it gets a bit trickier when you go into departments. But certainly, despite some successes during the pandemic, some, some less so successful schemes, there is that slight sense that we, we, we've lost momentum or at least momentum has been a bit stop-start. So let's go into that report then, Poppy. One issue that comes up time again, not just in our report, but many other uh, pieces of analysis in this area, but also conversations you'd have with people in Whitehall is that challenge of data sharing between government departments, between government and different agencies, and then between national and local government. So could you just talk us through what you found in that area and some of the solutions that stakeholders were suggesting? Starting with sharing between local government and national government, we heard from interviewees that some local governments are incredible at this, others are not where they need to be, but overall, Local government digitisation is essential to drive digitisation in central government and vice versa. At the moment, local government is much more used to sharing data between teams than central government. For example, bringing together social services, the health services and the police to deliver targeted household support. If it's able to do this 
With central government, it would be an invaluable source of evidence for decision making. Across Whitehall, there's a sort of a bit of a culture of departments being siloed off from each other. But something we heard from our interviewees was actually that people are hesitant to share data between departments because they're not quite sure of the legal ramifications. And we've seen a few scandals recently where data has been shared inappropriately or has been leaked. And I think the officials can be worried that this is going to happen if they share data across Whitehorn. For example, we spoke to Roger Taylor as part of our work. He is the former chair of the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation and I think a former person on this podcast. He stressed the importance of central government in coordinating digitisation across councils, but also in coordinating data sharing across individual departments. He suggested that Whitehall needs to implement a strong data sharing framework that has legal protections built into it and good examples for how data sharing can be done in an appropriate way. Likewise, he said pilots are a really useful way of building trust, both trust from the public in government to use their data appropriately, but also trust within government for officials to be sharing data. There's that slight area of legal uncertainty, and maybe if it even isn't legal uncertainty, there is just uncertainty that individuals within government feel, and clearly some form of much clearer data sharing framework could potentially loosen the wheels a little bit and enable that to move a little bit more freely. I suspect when it comes between central government and local government, it gets a little bit more complex, but still having those basic frameworks in place allow the facilitation of such initiatives. Can I just pick up another issue? I was having a look at the report earlier today, and it talks about in the recommendations at the top about moving from a so-called one-stop shop to a no-stop shop which uh, I sort of, I've read further and understood the concept, but it's not immediately obvious what that means. So could you just talk through both concepts and if they were to be implemented, what would be the implications for the public sector? As you know, public services are typically designed with the onus on citizens to go and find out what they're eligible for and go and then apply for it. This can be really frustrating for people filling in lengthy paperwork and often the people that need the support the most are the ones that fall through the cracks, either through lack of digital skills or lack of understanding of what's out there. Currently, the government is developing what it would call a one-stop shop. So This is its one login for government programme and it's a huge step in the right direction. It enables citizens to access a whole wealth of services through one login. So you only need to have one, one username, one password to be able to access everything from your driving licence all the way to child tax credits. Some of our interviewees suggested perhaps the government could go further and develop proactive public services. This would be using existing data across the government to identify which citizens are eligible for different public services and reach out to them directly. This is great in terms of efficiency, but it also has potential quite significant cost-saving opportunities, particularly in the health space where addressing issues earlier mean that they're not allowed to worsen. There's some really good examples internationally of where this has been done well. So for example, in Portugal, they launched a social energy tariff, but only saw about 150,000 people apply for this tariff. When they went back to go and investigate why that is, they discovered that citizens were unaware that they needed to apply for this tariff. So therefore, the Portuguese government collated data across a few of their departments, from their tax system and actually from the energy companies themselves, and then reached out directly to eligible households. This meant over 700,000 households benefited in the end, rather than the 150,000 who had signed up in the first place. 
And you can see how that might appeal to the next government if Labour were to win power and wanted to make sure that the potential benefits and financial support that are provided by the government get to who needs it and overcome some of those barriers that stop people being able to apply to get them, that would potentially be quite an appealing upgrade. The one-stop shop that you described at the start sounds useful, but maybe not transformative, whereas a no-stop shop approach could really change the way in which the government goes about providing such services in the future. But it all comes down, I think, to how Whitehall works and where the power lies within Whitehall. And as we know, a feature of the UK political debate is the role of the Treasury, with a lot of criticism about the Treasury being a blocker on various different elements, particularly around investment in various different elements, whether that's in infrastructure, but also in other areas. And I think that applies to what we're talking about today, investment in digitization efforts and new systems in which to deliver them. So I just wanted to know, with that central challenge that people have identified more broadly, did that come up much? And did the stakeholders you interviewed see any need for reform of Treasury processes? Yeah, we heard from a few stakeholders that existing spending guidance just isn't well suited to digital projects, particularly when it comes to conducting cost-benefit analysis, which is such a fundamental part of the Green Book. And the Treasury actually has recently done a review of its Green Book process. So this is the guidance they give to departments to submit spending requests. And the review the Treasury conducted ended up finding out that currently the Green Book does not go far enough to support the government ambitions on levelling up or reaching net zero due to this emphasis on the benefit to cost ratio. The Treasury, after doing this review, then released guidance to Whitehall departments to ensure that these priorities are reflected in spending decisions. And it was suggested to us by stakeholders that perhaps digital transformation could be put on an equal pegging. So it's equally taken into account when it comes to spending decisions as levelling up and reaching net zero. Right. Okay. So so it sounds like there is some form of reform in place. I guess we'll see over the next couple of years and until we get to the next election, how well that revised guidance of the so-called Green Book has had an impact. But it could be that an incoming government might want to revisit that, depending on their own ambitions towards digitization more broadly. Let's go back to where I was talking at the start about Francis Moore. For people who are involved, and I apologize to those non-UK listeners, as a slightly parochial point, but people involved in UK debates in Whitehall about public sector digitization. The role of Francis Maud is both a slightly frustrating topic for people, but one that constantly comes up. There's this idea of where he was a minister from 2010, I think, to 2015 in this role before he moved on to a different post. And he was essentially responsible for those efforts, amongst other things. He was responsible for driving digitization within government. And he got a lot of credit, but people have also contested whether the reforms that he brought in were as successful and um, perhaps as we've seen in other countries over time. So it's contested, but I think he is the reference point still, which I think says something. So I just wanted to get into that particular point about political capital, political drive over time to ensure that these challenges are overcome in delivering public sector digitization. So what were views like that you got around I don't know, getting a new Francis Moore type role in or having some form of central structure within government to deliver these efforts. So funny you should mention Francis Moore. He came up again and again through our stakeholder interviews. It was highlighted to us that having a dedicated person with the sufficient political buy-in driving the digital agenda is by far the best way to achieve whole-scale change. 
it was after all under more that gov.uk that I referred to earlier was developed and likewise he brought in the government digital service. There was some debate in our conversations with stakeholders about whether this should be driven at a political or at an official level. At political level, you have the advantage of a cabinet behind you and being able to push it at a level above officials. But conversely, it was argued that having an official driving it means that you have great knowledge of the of the system and you're more likely to be in place for a fair bit longer. Overall, the recommendation of a ministerial level digital champion was included in our report. Somebody who sits between the cabinet office and the treasury in order to have central and spending buy-in and someone who can be a real torchbearer for digital transformation. I think that would be quite an interesting difference, wouldn't it, if you did have someone who sat not only in the cabinet office, but also across the treasury. I think the board role was very much centralised on in the cabinet office. I think probably most of those people that you spoke to wouldn't see this as a silver bullet. And I guess there are other models for how you can get that political capital invested. But there is going to be a big challenge. Let's take the scenario of a Labour government, for example. If you are going to find a Labour government wanting to bring in very ambitious digitised efforts in controversial departments like work and pensions for benefits or for the healthcare service rather than NHS, it will be controversial. You'll get concerns about the role of often US companies in, in delivering this. You will get concerns about the centralization of data in a big brother state. And the government will have to get a lot of criticism and it will require someone being able to front it up and continue to drive it in spite of that criticism. Otherwise, we'll get a little bit what we've seen before, where there isn't that sufficient political capital invested in it. And it becomes stop, start, stop, start, depending on what is happening with each changing administration, each changing minister. Clearly, as you say, Poppy, there's something that's going to have to happen under the official level as well. You can't have a, just a minister floating around with no one to sort of support him uh, in order to drive these efforts over Whitehall. And they'll have to work very closely with each individual department to make sure they have a good working relationship to drive through change collectively. But I think your point is a clear one. Let's go back to just conclude around Labour. As I said earlier, they've just had their conference, and I gave you a little quote there from, from Darren Jones, the Shadow Chief Secretary, but I just wanted to get a broader sense of what they've been saying about public sector digitisation, both at the conference, but also more broadly. Where, where do they stand? I think Labour are definitely interested in this space and are aware of the potential efficiencies that can be gained and the improvements in public services that can be achieved through the digitisation of the services. You mentioned Darren Jones at the conference. He told a fringe event he was really interested in the idea of interoperable data across departments, which is harks back to what we were saying earlier about a data framework which would allow it to be interoperable between departments. He also rightly said at this fringe event that he wanted to fix the basics of how data is shared throughout government. This is something that's absolutely necessary and we touch on throughout the report because in order to start deploying more advanced technologies such as generative AI, you really have to get the basics of how data is shared throughout the government. At the moment, you have, for example, five different definitions of household across government. It would make it very difficult for even the most advanced technologies to be drawing this information together. Likewise, Shadow Paymaster General Jonathan Ashworth actually joined us for the launch of this report, and he's really interested in this space. He has some great comments. So he was previously Shadow DWP Secretary, a department you mentioned, and he was really interested in how AI can be used to make the welfare system more efficient. It'll be interesting to see what he says this afternoon when he's doing his speech. Well, thanks for that, Poppy. There's lots to get our teeth into. And I think, as you say, 
the generative AI has been the thing that everyone is talking about with regards to public sector digitization, but that in and of itself touches on a much wider bunch of issues, some of which we've touched on today, but, but not all of it. To those who are listening, please take a look at the podcast notes or come to Global Council's website at www.global-council.com. There you'll be able to find a copy of the report, which Poppy and the team authored. And if you want to continue the conversation with Poppy or with others at Global Council, you'll find all the team details on our website. Just to say, next week, we've got a great episode coming up. We've got Helen Dixon, the Data Protection Commissioner for Ireland, and she's going to share her thoughts on all things GDPR and the reform of the GDPR and some of those future policy tensions around AI and many, many other things beyond. So do join us then. Bye-bye.